Listen, will you turn with me uh, to one of the most glorious places in all of the Word of God? And I, I, I mean that very sincerely, Romans chapter 8. And Paul is going to close out this particular chapter with a flourish. And once we leave this chapter, most of the spiritual, uh, uh, the, the essence of faith and the essence of, of how we can come to trust in Christ by faith and the security of who we are in Christ will be of put to behind us. And we will then move into doctrine. We will then move into, oh, uh, being uh, sanctified, uh, serving the, the church. Now that you have an understanding of, of who you are in Christ and that nobody can take that away from you, we're going to, Paul is going to try to, uh, to share with us the wonders of what do we do with this wonderful knowledge of Christ and what do we do with this this essence of being a part of his family. Just like any family would, you want the, the family to flourish. You want the young people to grow and find a, a, their niche in life, find a place in life that they, they, they want to do and, and, and go out into this world and, and, and make something of themselves. Every parent would want that. So the Lord, I believe, wants that from us here within the church family. He wants us to flourish, to, to take off within this faith that we have and use our faith and use our, our spiritual gift for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so for that to really take niche, for that to really take hold, Paul is just emphasizing and re-emphasizing how secure we are in Christ. We have, last week in verses 31 to 34, we, we saw that no one, Satan especially, cannot rob us of our salvation. He cannot take away from us what is rightfully ours through Christ our Lord. Well, this week we're going to find out Paul is going to hit into any circumstances that come our way. Those neither can steal away this wonderful joy that is ours in Christ now, Paul set the tone for us. If you recall, and I know you do, in the 7th chapter, in the 24th verse, out of nowhere, he says, wretched man that I am. Remember? Wretched man that I am, he said, who's going to set me free from this body of death? And then he answers in the next verse, verse 35, 25, he says, thanks be to God, it is done through Christ Jesus my Lord. And so what Paul did was he just kind of exposed himself saying, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to set me free? Oh, it's already been done through Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he begins the eighth chapter in the first verse by saying, there is therefore. You might want to memorize this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Paul is assuring you and me through himself that we are not to be condemned any longer, even though wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free? And so he does all of this in chapter 8. And chapter 8 is, well, it's it's like uh, the creme de creme. It is the, the cream of the crop, so to speak. It is the very wonders of the Word of God. Because in this one chapter is everything that you and I need to know to be secure in who we are in Christ and for what purpose. So that we might serve the Lord. 
So Paul's asking us in verse 35, he says, Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Who can stop? Who can destroy the love that, that Jesus Christ has for you? Now, when we left Romans off last week, we saw how strongly Paul wishes for us to be secure in our faith and be able to answer the question very honestly and very confidently that no one, nothing, it would be impossible for Christ to give up on us. No one will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. So I want you to read these verses with me. Now, we're only going to read verses 33 uh, and 34 for, uh, just to get the flavor of what's being said from verses 35 through 39. But I am going to touch on verse 34 because it's so rich. There is so much in all of this. It's, it's, it's really almost impossible to cover it all in, in a short period of time. Chapter 8 could be studied for years and years. I know you feel like it has already, but not really. But let's read from verse 33 to verse 39. Verse 33, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He asks, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. The word justifies means basically just as if I've never sinned. He's the one who justifies you. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Another rhetorical question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But... In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy, don't you get a sense of how much and how much we ought to love Jesus Christ? I mean, gosh, he just, Paul begins this by saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends by saying nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, he's everything to us. He's everything to this church. Um, everything that we are is because of who he is. And today, of all days, that's the message. The message is Christ and how much he loves you. Father, we want to come into this, this, this place in Scripture fully empowered by you. And so I ask, dear Father, that you would uh, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. It says that, Father, you give us that as a verse in the 119th Psalm. And so we just quote back to you, Father, what you say to us. I pray, Father, that you would move me aside. Just, Father, that I would not get in the way of what you want to say to us. Uh, let's face it, Father, just a human being. I'm just a, I'm just a man. Um, there's no way I could, I could reach everybody here. It's just impossible. But, Father, you can do that. 
And so I give this place up to you, Father. I uh, ask that you would, uh, you would do with each person here as you so desire. There's some of us here that are very confident in our faith. We don't need a lot more confidence. There's others of us here, Father, who are desperately in need of being assured that we're believers. Satan and circumstances seem to beat us up. Whatever is the case in every individual here, Father, would you minister to each one as you so see fit? I pray you'll bless us. I thank you, Father, from the bottom of my heart for men and women like Doug and Kathy Renault and men like Rob and Selleck and David Briggs. And, and Father, for allowing us to be frugal enough with the monies that you, these dear people gave to this church that we would uh, be able to save enough to be able to purchase this building. And then, Father, you bring in the people to help us to maintain this place. There's exciting things ahead of us here in this building, Father. I can sense it. I can sense it just as sure as I'm, I'm breathing right now. But, Father, I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know. I believe that you care for us that much, though. I believe you want good things because, Father, it is our intent that none of us get the praise. We come here in this building to worship your most glorious and wonderful Son, Jesus Christ. Father, it's in his name that we ask these things. It's in his name that we ask that you would fill us all up with your love so that we might understand just how, how wonderful you are and how much you have given to us as believers in you. So, Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. I want to look at with you just for a second or two. At, that's not true. It's about a couple minutes. In, in, in verse 34, there are four things in verse 34 that um, are, are realities of who Christ is and who we are in Christ and how he protects us. First and foremost, if you look at verse 34, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the one who died. Christ Jesus is he who died. Stop right there. Through the death of Jesus Christ, he took upon himself the full penalty of our sin. And with his death upon the cross, as he took upon himself our penalty, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And with that, he took upon himself all of the condemnation that would fall upon us throughout eternity. Which led him to say, Paul, to write in chapter 8, verse 1, a, a statement that rings like a loud bell. There is therefore, Paul wrote, now and forevermore, I would add, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died for that sin on your behalf. Secondly, he not only died, but Paul tells us further that Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, it demonstrates his victory over the supreme penalty that sin brings forth, and sin brings forth death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. But, Paul goes on to write in that same verse, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So we see that he died, but he didn't just die, he rose from the dead. But he didn't just raise from the dead. In verse 34, Paul assures us that Jesus Christ now is at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is the place of, of, of exaltation. It's a place of honor. It's the place of power. It's the full authority that has been given to Jesus Christ, who has been named now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Full authority, full power, full judgment is his. Which led Paul to write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Bet you most of you know these verses. Tremendous verses. Talking about Jesus Christ, Paul writes, Being found in appearance as a man, Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death upon the cross. For this reason, verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, for this reason, because he humbled himself, went to the cross, died for our sin, God highly exalted him and gave upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow. You know, there's people right today that says, not me. I'm not bowing. I don't think he's my savior. I'm not that concerned about all of this religiosity that you guys believe in. He's not mine. Well, one day, the Bible says that every knee is going to bow. Paul gets very specific, saying every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on this earth, and those who are under the earth. And so he has been given this place of seated at the right hand of God. He died he rose from the dead. He now is seated at the right hand of God. Fourthly, in verse 34 of Romans chapter 8, Jesus Christ constantly prays for us. It says in verse 34, Christ also intercedes. That means prays for us. Although our Lord's work here on this earth was done upon the cross. Remember, he said in John chapter 19, verse 30, he says, it is finished. The, the, the chore that was given to him to accomplish on this earth was done when he died upon the cross. It is finished. Nonetheless, he still has a specific job that he does, and that is he intercedes for you and me. His continuing ministry in heaven itself is praying for his followers. And he will continue that ministry without interruption until every redeemed soul is safely with him in heaven. I want you to listen to a verse we read last week out of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It's, a, it's an amazing verse. It says, therefore, talking of Jesus... He is able also, listen to this, He is able also to save forever. Very key. He can save forever those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Listen. Listen to what is even better news. Since, it says, He always lives to make intercession, to pray for us. So he died upon the cross for our sins so there would be no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But he didn't just die. He rose from the dead. He rose 
to show us that he has victory over sin and death. But he didn't just raise from the dead. He raised from the dead to go be seated at the right hand of the Father in that place of power and authority. And he doesn't just sit there. He sits there and prays for us. He prays to save forever those of us who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for us. Listen, to deny the security of your faith is to deny the sufficiency of the work of Christ. He's done it all for us. We need to believe him at his word. Now, in the rest of chapter 8, starting with verse 35 to verse 39, Paul asks some questions. He says, what could possibly separate us from the love or the care of Jesus Christ? He has established already in verses 31, 2, 3, and 4 that it is impossible for anyone, Satan in particular, to take away our salvation. But now Paul asks a further inevitable question. Is it possible that maybe circumstances can separate us from our faith? And Paul now proceeds to show us that that too is impossible. He doesn't give an exhausted list. But he begins in verse 35 by asking this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives out some, some things that might go on in one's life. He says, Will tribulation? Verse 35. Will distress? Will persecution? Will famine? Will nakedness or peril or sword? He is asking, Will unpleasant and dangerous circumstances have a detrimental influence on our faith. But the question isn't really that. The question is, can any of these events cause a believer to sin themselves out of their salvation? But let's begin with the obvious. Let's see, what is Paul really saying here? Is he talking about you and me? Somewhat but not when it comes to who will separate us from the love of Christ. It should be noted in verse 35, verse 37, and verse 39, it is noted in there, the love of Christ is in verse 35. Him who loved us is in verse 37. The love of God is in verse 39. That love does not refer to our love for God. It refers to his love for us. And so to put all of this in perspective, we're not talking about how much you love God, will that separate you from him? What we're talking about is how much does he love you? And can anything that you do separate his love from you? And the answer is a resounding no. It is utterly impossible. You see, you and I cannot really love God until He first loves us. That's a statement out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love, it says, because He first loved us. So everything you and I know about love has been given to us from God. And so the love of Christ, Him who loved us, the love of God represents our salvation. And so Paul is asking rhetorically in verse 35, 37, and 39 concerning the love of Christ, a huge question. And the question is, is there any circumstance that is powerful enough to cause you 
to turn your back against Christ. Now catch this. To the extent that it would cause Christ to turn his back upon you. And Paul says, nope. No. No. You're not in control of your salvation. You asked by faith for him to come into your heart. He took it upon himself now to care for you the rest of your life. That's his ministry to you. You can't separate him. You see, most people read this, can I do anything to separate me from Christ? That's not what Paul is speaking about. Paul is speaking about, can you do anything to separate yourself from Christ to make him separate himself from you? No, can't be done, he says. What at issue is here is the eternal question. Is the eternal love and the forgiveness that Christ bought for us with his blood upon the cross, is that sufficient enough to save you and to keep you forever secure in your faith? There's a statement that our Lord made to the disciples, but really to everyone that ever came to Christ to believe in Him, when it was at the, the Last Supper, and in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come that He would depart out of the world to the Father, in other words, He knew that it was eminent that He was going to go to the cross and have to die for the sin of this world. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, that's us, and the disciples, he loved them or us to the end. Now, key to that verse, John 13, 1, is the last two words, the end. The end there does not refer simply to the end of the life of Jesus Christ, to when he would go to the cross, he would love them until he went to the cross. No, you know that. The end there doesn't simply mean the end of our life here on this earth. No, no. The end there talks to the end of time, to eternity. Which led John to write in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and also verse 17. Listen to these words. Talk about confidence. John writes, By this the love of God was manifested in us. God sent His only begotten Son into this world so that we might live through Him goes on to say in verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, so I'm trying to share with you, but that He loved us. That's the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is by faith you believe and trust in Him for your salvation. That places you into His family, and He takes you into His own, and He has now called you His child. He will care for you. So, this love is not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to the, be the propitiation. That's a long word for the payment for our sin. He died for yours and my sin. Now, verse 17. By this, love is perfected in you and me, so that we may have. Have what? Have confidence in the day of judgment. That's what the end is talking about so that we will be confident when we stand before the Lord. We have this confidence because we know that the divine and destructible, indestructible love of Jesus Christ holds us firmly in His hands for eternity. That's what Jesus was saying in John chapter 10, verses 28, 29, and 30. Verse 30, 
They were asking him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He says, I've already told you, you just won't listen. And that's when he said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And that's when they took up stones to kill him because they said, he asked them, why do you want to kill me? Why do you want to stone me? For what I said? No, no, no. I mean, you don't. for what I done? He said, oh, they said, no, not for what you did, but for what you just said. You made yourself out to be God. They knew what he said. Everybody knew what he said. Before he made that statement, I and the Father are one, he said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and I know them. And he says, I hold them in my hands and they will never perish. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hands. The next verse, verse 29, he says, And my Father, who is greater than all, he holds them in his hands too. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. You are secure in Christ. You cannot be any more secure. And so the Lord God, I think through Paul, is trying to confirm in your heart of hearts that you know for sure that you are a believer so that you can be confident not only in the day of judgment, that's great, but you can be confident here now so that we can make an impact for Christ within our families, within our lives, within our church. Look it. Just as you and I can only love God because He first loved us, you and I can only hold on to God because He holds on to us. You're not holding on to your salvation, folks. God did not entrust you with your salvation. He trusted you with faith, but not with salvation. He's holding on to you and me. So let's take a look at these. What are these, these trials that come our way? In verse 35, there's tribulation. That's a Greek word which is T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. It means to be squeezed or placed under pressure. That's tribulation. The word, second word, distress. It's a longer Greek word. It's S-T-E-N-O-C-H-O-R-I-A. It's, it's to be in confinement, to be helplessly hemmed in. So the first two are being placed under pressure and to be helplessly hemmed in. Do you ever, ever feel like I know I feel like that sometimes. I, I get tribulation and, and distress. I do, I get it. I, 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 I think I put myself under the pressure, but I feel that pressure. The third word is persecution. It refers to an affliction that is suffered for following after Jesus Christ. That's what it means there. The fourth word is famine. That results from persecution. When Christians are discriminated against and cannot afford to buy enough food to eat, there is famine. The fifth word is nakedness. It doesn't refer to nudity. It, it fits in with famine. It's being unable to adequately close yourself because of, because of the persecution, the famine, and now the nakedness. Then comes peril. Peril, simply, simply put, is to be exposed to dangers. And the last word is sword. Now, sword is not like a sword for sword fight. Sword, fight. sword there is like a, a, a word for a small dagger that can be easily concealed. It was used by the assassins in those days who would mingle into a crowd uh, and get around a person that they wanted to kill and they could hide the dagger in their cloak, pull it out, kill him, and put it back and move away without anyone knowing they were killed. Sword was a symbol of death and murder, which 
very naturally leads us into verse 36. Verse 36 is a quote out of Psalms 44:22. So Paul says in, in verse 36, just as it is written in Psalms 44:22, but for your sake we are, in Psalms 44:22, it says we are being killed. Here it says, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is saying is the cost of faithfulness to our Lord has always carried with it a price to be paid. In other words, don't be surprised when you and I have to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. It comes to everyone who walks with Christ. It's not uncommon. In fact, let me read you these three places in Scripture. They're probably up on the board. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Jesus Christ considers you and me following him to be um, a priority in our lives. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 38. The person who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, he expects us to participate in, in this thing called Christianity and using the spiritual gift that he has given you. To not take up your cross and not to follow him is not worthy of him. It goes on to say in the next verse, verse 39, The one who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Well, I, honestly, I, I do understand verse 39. I know it sounds tough to understand sometimes, but to lose your life for the sake of Christ is to find something that, well, it's like this when I'm around you guys. It's better than anything I can ever experience. I do love you. Paul assured his uh, son in the Lord, Timothy. He said, Timothy, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Deal with it, Timothy. It's coming. Persecution. I say to you as I say to myself, deal with it. Persecution comes. If you want to live a godly life, persecution comes. And then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, which is a verse that I kind of like, because have you ever you know, uttered out you know, in the privacy of your own place, oh Lord, why me? Why do I have to go through this some more? You know, complain, complain, complain. Well, don't feel bad. Our Lord Jesus Christ even said, Lord, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's a, it's a good question. But Peter says, beloved, talking to the family of God, Christian, he is saying. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. I add in there just to you. I, I read that a lot. Why do I think that this is that I should be out of this trouble? Why do I think that some strange thing like this shouldn't be happening just to me? You see, trials happen to all of us. Which leads Paul to end this place in Scripture with a flurry. I mean a flurry. To understand verses 7, 37, 38, and 39 is off the chart, folks. He says, but in all these things, after he's told us about 
about this whole ordeal, this, this, uh, where he says in verse 36, but for your sake we are being put to death, being killed all day long. We are considered to be sheep to be slaughtered. He says, though, in verse 37, but in all of these things, he assures us again, in all of these things you overwhelmingly conquer. Paul says, through him who loves you. Paul says in verse 38, I'm convinced. I am absolutely, utterly convinced. Paul is now pouring it on. He is overwhelmingly convinced that you and I will conquer. He says, there is not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor thing present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths. Anything else you can think of, any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Now think back. In verse 36, what we just saw about, for our sake, for, for his sake, we are being killed, being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. How can a, a sheep who is absolutely helpless, can't fight his way out of a paper bag, how can a sheep who is being led to slaughter be more than a conqueror? How can a sheep be overwhelmingly conquerors? Let me remind you what it is. Paul is not saying that you and I are the conqueror. Paul is saying our Lord is the one who does all the conquering for us. Any victory that comes in your or my life is because of Jesus Christ and belongs to Jesus Christ. That is exactly what David Briggs prayed about to Doug and, and Kathy Renault. That they are a people who do not want the credit. They do not want the recognition. They want it to go to the Lord. All the victory belongs to Christ, not to us. And any victory in your life or my life is not because of our being victorious or our being conquerors. It is because of Jesus Christ who loves us. Overwhelmingly conquer is a, the word H-U-P-E-R-N-I-K-A-O. It means to conquer with, with success to spare. In other words, it's to overwhelmingly conquer. It brings victory over everyone and everything that threatens our relationship to Jesus Christ. And it is done entirely through the power of the one who loves us, Christ. Paul has just declared a while ago, back in verse 28 of this same chapter, he says this, God has caused all things to work together for good for his children, to those of us who love him according to his purpose. And so in verse 38, Paul says, I am persuaded. In the New King James, it's persuaded. In the New American Standard, it's convinced. It means that Paul says, I know this for certain. He is assuring us that he's not teaching us of anything that he himself is not fully convinced and persuaded of. Let me ask, let me, as we close. In fact, you can close your Bibles if you want. Just think for a moment with me. You know what happens to a believer when they are persuaded, when they are convinced? People who are convinced have conviction. And people who have convictions live according to their principles. How else can you explain 
the life and the ministry of Paul and the other apostles who gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Um, it's amazing how they lived. They lived like they did because they were persuaded that Jesus Christ died for them, rose for them, is seated at the right hand of the Father, is going to come back again for them, and that their faith was secure because of Him. That's what the church needs. That's what we need here, the Rock Community Church. We need church today that people who are convinced, secure, that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Listen how this began. Chapter 8 began by Paul saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. He ended the chapter by saying that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And in the middle of chapter 8, he says that all things are going to work together for good to those of us who love God and are called according to His purpose. God's got great things in store for you. There's only one person that I know of can stop you, and that's yourself. That's it. There's, a, there's plenty of us here, me included, that don't feel smart enough. Don't think we can do it. Uh, I, I'd tackle that job, Lord, but I just don't have the... I'm, I need to get a little more intelligence. I need to get a little more understanding of the Bible and all of that, so I'm going to wait. Or I'd tackle that job. But you know, man, you have no idea how busy I am, Lord. You know, I'm, I'm busy. Well, I understand busy. I've used that excuse a couple of times my own self. Well, you don't know, Lord, I'd, I'd do it, but I don't have the finances. I mean, if I had the money, I'd, I'd do it, but I don't have the money. Listen, uh, we love a Lord that has all the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got the money. He's got the time for you. He'll give you the intelligence. I am really... I'm a prime example of it. Folks, I have just told you everything I know out of the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. I've poured it out. I'm going to go home now, and maybe not this afternoon. Normally I do, but not, I, I've got stuff I've got to do this afternoon. But normally I just go home. I sit down in front of my computer because it's a place for me to relax, and I start studying chapter 9. I just like doing it. And I'll try to learn more so that I can tell you more next week. If I were to stop and think about how utterly dumb I am, I wouldn't do this. It's intimidating. Satan would love to stop you and me from serving the Lord with the spiritual gift that he has given us by using those flimsy excuses. Not enough money, not enough time, not enough intelligence. It's not you that's doing it. Paul is saying... Wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to God. It's been done through Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation of my life. I'm free to serve the Lord. And when I sin, he has given me 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he doesn't kick me out of the family. 
He just embraces me. That's why, you know, there's that story about the prodigal son who ran off. And when he came back, his father was waiting for him. And when the, fun, the son started asking for forgiveness for running off with all of his money and everything, the father said, kill a fatted calf, my son has come home. That's why that story is in the Bible. To make you and I see how much the Lord loves us. Well, that's my gun hole. Let's go get them for today. <laughs> I want to encourage you to, to do great things. In this building right now, right now, in here, there's so many ideas swirling around in so many of your heads, what you'd do if you had the time, if you had the money, if you had the intelligence. Listen, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's try. Let's see what the Lord would have for us. I see magnificent things done through this church, through you and me, this community. Out there, I mean, I love this building, by the way. I, every once in a while, I go over here and look and see all those homes and how many people are in them not even doing anything, kind of sleeping in like I used to and wouldn't go to church because all of you guys are kind of... <laughs> you need it. You're, you're weak. You can't stand on your own two feet for crying out loud, weak as you are. They're up there. They need to hear from us. They need to hear about our Savior. Let's do great things for Christ. Father, thank you for everybody here. God bless them. Help us as a church to be everything you want us to be, Father. But most of all, let us worship you and thank you for the goodness of who you are. The victory is yours, Father. The assurance of our salvation, don't, you, you did not entrust that to us. You're holding on to us. And we might feel like we're holding on to you, but Father... It's you. So thank you for that. Bless us all. In Jesus' precious name, amen.